So we continue this morning in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. The title of this series, as we like to do with each series, is A Life of Adventure. This compelling invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples, to the ones who met him on the mountain, who met him and worshipped, and then even as they were worshipping, experienced doubt, and yet Jesus did not separate the doubters from the worshippers. Jesus spoke to all of them and gave them this command, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and gave these assuring words, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." The age that we are in now is the age of the church, and if Jesus has not yet returned to establish his kingdom and his throne here on this earth forever, then we have to believe that God's hope for this world, the way that that is still best fulfilled, the way that the gospel, life-changing message of the gospel is best taken into this world is through the witness and the work of the church. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have to to confess that we fall short of that on a daily basis. And as hard as that pill may be to swallow, there is such hope in that because it means that there is still room for God to work. There is still room for the Holy Spirit to be at work. And in the moment that we begin to question and second-guess ourselves is the moment that we are invited to look at Scripture and to see the people that God chose in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their failures. And it wasn't the work that they did. It was the work that God, through His Holy Spirit, did through them that makes it possible for us to be here together today. Amen? Amen. And that is the great witness, the great communion of saints that we are invited into. We are invited to take up this work. Now, as we said last week, we are, we are slowing down to consider what is the life of a, of a disciple or what is not the life of a disciple. If we, are, if we are called to make disciples, we have to have an understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And I understand, I know that that could be a series in and of itself, but know that the work that we are doing together as a church is to begin to move in that direction. We, we have um, a, a team of folks who just have a deep heart for discipleship who have begun to meeting and, and begun to meet together and to wrestle with this question, God, what does it look like for us as a church to, to be more faithful disciples, but then to live into this great commission to, to more faithfully make disciples? Uh, and, and I love that one of, one of the, the sisters in that, that group uh, last week said, she said, I, I really have been wrestling with this, what it means to, to really take this seriously, to be a disciple of Jesus and to share this news um, with other people and to, and to do it in a way that is, that, is, that is bold yet inviting, to do it in a way that is, um, that is faithful, to do it in, in a way that's, that's compelling. And she said, I, I want to be there, but I'm not quite there, because I, I know that it will mean crossing some boundaries that I have established for my life that, that help my life feel safe. And when she finished that, I thought, that is the most beautiful, like, honest approach to this invitation to be disciple makers. And, and I think that she was feeling some level of guilt over, like, I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. And, and yet, I just tried to encourage her and say, hey, the fact that you recognize that and the fact that, that, that this is something that you want, like it's a room full of people who desire that. And, and we are really simply trying to move the needle for us as a church and, and find ways um, to create opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work and to move the needle in, in being more faithful uh, as disciples. And that invitation and that call is there for you regardless of where you land on this journey. If you are here this morning and, and you're like, you know, you've been walking faithfully with the Lord for decades, there is still 
that invitation still stands for you. There's still work for you to do. There's still ways to participate um, and, and to grow more faithfully as a, disciples, as a disciple. If you are new to this, um, if you are not sure about this, uh, then the beauty is that God meets us where we are. In the person of Jesus, we read in Scripture that God dwells in unapproachable light. And, and that is to help us wrap our minds around this, this idea of God as being set apart. And yet this God who dwells in unapproachable light came near in the person of Jesus, the incarnational God. God put on flesh, and as Eugene Peterson says, it moved into the neighborhood. This God who dwells in unapproachable light is very approachable in the person of Jesus, meets us where we are in our journey, wherever that may be, and invites us to more. And and last week as we considered what it looks like, Perhaps what it doesn't look like to be a disciple. We went back to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll we'll be there again this morning. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we looked at Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and this warning that Jesus gives to those to whom he has just preached or proclaimed uh, this this Sermon on the Mount, this collection of of teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching, revealing to those who who would come and, and hear him This is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom, this kingdom that has come alongside the kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom that is present and yet separate. And the invitation of the church is that we live in this separate kingdom in this world in a way that is so compelling and so inviting that as Ben said, people can't help but take notice and say, what is it about you Christians? What is it about the way that you live your life that I just feel drawn to? So that's kind of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, to show us that there's a different way to live, even while we are in this world. And Jesus gives these warnings at the end of his teaching. And last week we looked at this idea of false prophets and, and this idea that we, we, we measure the, the quality of someone's connection with Jesus by the fruit in their lives. And, and so that, that kind of forces us to turn the mirror on ourselves and to say if we are being discipled by someone or something what is that thing that is discipling us, or who is that person that is discipling us, and what are we being discipled into, right? So we examine ourselves and, and, and wrestle with the question, what, who or what am I listening to? Who or what am I allowing to speak into my life, and, and what is that shaping me into? And if it doesn't look like Jesus, then I have to question who and what it is that I am being discipled by. Now, if we are all being discipled by something, we are all also disciplers of others, so if, if someone is examining your life, if they are watching you live, if they're listening to you speak, if they're watching your life and, and you inherently are, are discipling that person, what are they being formed into? Incidentally, discipleship doesn't just, like it takes us being intentional in the way that we would disciple. But if someone is just observing your life, what is their understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Is it reflective of Jesus, or does it look very different than the person of Jesus? Because if we are discipling people into something that is different than Jesus, we have to examine our own lives. Now, if we're examining the fruit of our lives, this leaves us with a couple of of options, a couple of responses, right? Depending on your personality, your tendency, and, and depending on, you know, if you're if you are not a middle child, I mean an only child, like if you have multiple siblings, then maybe this is the your response. When, when you're, the fruit of your life is questioned, the response that may be most natural to you is to say, whoa, whoa, okay, I know that I'm not always perfect. However, I'm doing way better than this person over here. 
right? You, you know that as, as a person who's not an only, like if you have siblings, you know the, the art of deflection. Yeah, but did you see what um, my brother did? Did you see what my, do you know what she did to, like this is why I did this because she did this to me. If we had a nickel for every time we heard that in our house. So we know the art of deflection. When, when, when we are forced to examine the fruit of our lives, it, it is, is much easier for us to hold as the standard the life of someone else. And we're pretty adept at picking the life of someone else that we feel like is less fruitful or whose fruit uh, measures up you know, way less than ours does. And we can say, well, that may be. However, I look way better than this person over here. On the other side of that, we may have this tendency, if our desire, in fact, is a deep desire to be a reflection of Jesus in this world and to bear fruit in his name, then maybe this is your tendency. Maybe you just go whole hog into, I am going to be a fruit bearer for Christ. And you begin to work. And you, you, you make it a, a point. You begin to make deals with yourself you can begin to lay out goals for yourself. I'm, I'm going to be more faithful in, in showing up to church. I'm going to be more faithful in coming to serve. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to increase my giving. I, I'm going to be kinder to people. I'm going to do all of these things that, that God may look at and say, hey, yeah, well done. That, that's the kind of fruit I'm talking about. Good job. Keep going. More of that, please. And, and Jesus for us has a response to that this morning. If the response to the fruit of your life being challenged is simply to try harder, to bear more fruit, right, as if fruit is something that we can bear ourselves when in fact it is something that is born through us by the work of the Holy Spirit. But if because of the world that we, we live in that tells you to do more, to give more, to make more, to create more, to put more of yourself out there, if the response is simply to dig in and with fervor say, I'm going to bear more fruit for the kingdom. Then we find that perhaps Jesus has something to say about that. And if last week we felt like it was challenging, um, then I don't know. We just buckle up this week. Matthew 7. Continuing where we picked up last week, Matthew 7, beginning with verse 21. Just a few short verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. What an incredibly challenging word from Jesus. And yet, what an invitation. My, my hope and my prayer all week as I've spent time with this passage and in conversation with my wife and conversation with people around me saying, I... I, if I had planned ahead, I would have scheduled to be away this Sunday so someone else could preach this really challenging 
really hard words of Jesus. Because what I don't want to have happen is for you to leave here questioning whether or not you are known by Jesus, questioning your salvation, questioning whether or not you are actually someone who Jesus would look at and say, I know you. I've seen the work that you're doing. I'm proud of who you are. Come and I have a place for you. My hope is not that you leave here questioning all of that. Whether, uh, rather, my hope is that you examine your life and, and that perhaps by the work of the Holy Spirit, there's something about what we hear this morning and there's something about these words of Jesus that would lead us to repentance. Now, I understand that that word has a negative connotation and yet it is one of the greatest gifts when we consider relationship with Jesus that we can have. Repentance is simply this idea of turning and walking in a new direction. Oftentimes, we hear that word at the end of a pointing finger, right? It feels like a word of judgment. Repent. You repent of the bad things that you're doing. Repent of the way you treated that person. Repent of the things that you've said. Repent of this lifestyle. And yet, if we consider the journey that we are invited into with Jesus, and in Jesus, a God who comes and is near us and, and is with us and walks alongside us, then that pointing finger begins to look like a finger that is pointing in a given direction. So my hope is that we would see the gift and an opportunity to examine our hearts and a gift and the opportunity of repentance to recognize where we are falling short and to merely turn and walk in a new direction, to walk in a way that is reflective of the life that Jesus comes to make possible for us. To walk away from those things that we once held as being important and to say, you know what, my only hope, the only hope that I have is not the things that I've done, but the only hope that I have is in the person of Jesus and what he accomplished for me on the cross. So many of you know that I, uh, I was a five-year uh, student at App. Uh, they asked me to stick around for another year because I wasn't uh, quite finished uh, at the end of, of four. Um, but what you may not know is, is the manner in which I finished that fifth year, and they actually let me out. Uh, it it might have come down to some begging uh, for one of my professors. Because I, I, when I went to do my graduation check, um, they said, essentially, you need to make no less than, than these really high grades in your three major uh, classes, and I was like, what? And they said, yeah, this, <laughs> this grammar course that you took and failed, um, and by failed, they meant I stopped going to it. Um, <laughs> you didn't replace that grade. And I was like, oh, you, you have to take it again to replace the, okay, that's great. I wish that I had paid attention, um, you know, when my advisor was telling me how to be a student uh, in college. <laughs> So, so I had, it, it came down to, I had to go to my three English professors and say, here, I need, to, I need no less than these grades in your classes, and they just looked at me like, okay, buddy, that's cute. Um, but, but to say to them, I, I just, I need to know exactly, like, what I need to do in, in order to get there, and, and, and I thought I was killing it, I thought I was doing really well, and it came down to checking grades, and, and there was one grade uh, that she gave me, like, half a grade, you know, lower than what I needed, which meant that like there was, there was a really strong chance of me not graduating. And, and so I went to the, the remaining English professor that I had, and I'd had her for, for a previous class, and we'd, we'd developed a bit of a relationship, and I went to her, and I was like, all right, here's the deal. 
I might not graduate <laughs> if I don't get this grade in your class. And she looked at me and, you know, as if to say, so? <laughs> I could tell that she wasn't really catching on, and I said, if I don't graduate, I'm done. Like, that's it. I'm not coming back to take one class, repeat one class so that I can graduate. I'm not saying that this is the wisest approach to school. I'm just saying that this was the way that it was playing out for me. And, and so as I began to, you know, she kind of looked at me. She said, really? You would just would stop? I was like, look, I've been here five years. I'm done. Like I, the Tommy Boy plan of college is not working for me. So <laughs> I, I need to be finished. And, and, and then I began to tell, say to her, these are all the reasons why I feel like I deserve this grade in your class. Look at all the work that I have done. Look at what a, an exemplary student, I, I mean, I was just pouring it on. Look at, and I, and I like had work with me to show, to remind her of the work that I had done in her class because I felt like I had done enough to deserve this given grade. And she looked at me and said, you're a great student, but I'm less concerned about the work that you did and more concerned about you as a person. I'm more concerned about what you will be able to go on and do by having this behind you. I was appealing to make, meeting a mark, doing enough, when yet what she was offering essentially was grace. Not that the work wasn't good, the work was there. But there was compassion in the way that she responded. She looked beyond the work and said, this is about much more than what you've accomplished. It's about who you are and, and what you can go on to do from here. And I will never, ever forget that. And I love, that's one of the things I've loved about being in this town is that I get to see her, run into her from time to time and just continue. She's always interested. What do you, tell me about what you're doing now. And, and I never leave that conversation without just thanking her for that gift. But also thanking her more than the gift of, of allowing me to graduate and giving me what I need, the gift of showing me what was most important. And that was the first thing I thought of as I read this passage this week. I wonder how many of us are like these false disciples, as Jesus would call them. How many of us go before him when we desire something? In this moment, this is a desire into, of, of entrance into the kingdom, right? And so we, we see Jesus go in this moment. This is a significant turn in Matthew's gospel. We see Jesus go in this moment from being the one who, who is the instructor, who is the fulfillment of God's law, who teaches in a way, as, as we read, as one who has authority, that people look at him and they kind of cock their heads and they lean in because Jesus teaches in a way that is different from anyone that they've ever heard before. The Pharisees, sure, they're living into their call by teaching and trying to explain God's word, but Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said, but I say... And reveals the life-giving word of God in a way that is different. So Jesus has been the ambassador and the instructor for this kingdom. But now all of a sudden we see something different. That Jesus in this moment becomes judge. He becomes the one who judges the quality of discipleship. Who judges the quality of those who have professed faithfulness and allegiance to him. 
So Jesus is offering a warning here by using the examples of these false disciples. Not everyone who says to me, remember this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will, we will look at the remaining verses in this chapter, the remaining verses in the Sermon on the Mount next week. But here at the end of it, Jesus is offering this warning, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And anytime we see something repeated in Scripture, that's we should pay attention to that. There's a reason that that's repeated. Right? There are times when we hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you. And it's, it, it's a, a point of emphasis, a mark of emphasis. Lord, Lord, as if to emphasize their allegiance to Jesus. So we see that there's something important about the profession of Jesus as Lord. And, and th- there's a debate as to whether or not this was a, a Christological statement of Jesus that he was professing himself as Messiah, right? We, we would read um, in, in John's gospel that J- when Jesus prepared to wash his disciples' feet, he knew all authority had been, get, had, been, had been given to him, and he leveraged that authority on behalf of his disciples. We read at the end of Matthew's gospel in this passage that we have been in now for some time, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's some debate as to whether or not Jesus is in this moment claiming that authority, placing himself as, as Lord of all. We're not sure. However, what we see here from these disciples or these false disciples is an emphasis in proclaiming allegiance to Jesus either as Lord or as teacher. The distinction is unclear. But we see that they are saying something of importance. Lord, Lord. Jesus, I have professed you. I've sung about you. I've prayed to you. I know the right things to say. Paul would say that professing with our mouth is important. But that that's not the only thing that's important. Because a lot of people can talk the talk. So it's not just professing allegiance to Jesus, as we see, is enough. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who knows the right things to say, not everyone who says that I am Lord, not everyone who looks to me for authority or as their authority will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then many will say to me on that day, When they find out that maybe they're not exactly where they thought they were in relation to Jesus, many will say to me on that day, but Lord, 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 now it's a cry of desperation. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I think it's important here to see that Jesus doesn't respond to their request to examine the work that they've done. He doesn't respond to it by saying, no, you did not prophesy in my name. You did not drive out demons. You did not do these things in my name, which ought to leave us to question, wait, if Jesus didn't know them, why were they able to do things in the name of Jesus? Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, the church is concerned with the manner in which the gospel is being proclaimed. So it's one of the things that that Paul addresses in his letter to the church in Philippi. 
Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He will go on to say, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am changed. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. The important thing is that Christ is preached. And speaking of this passage and kind of wrestling with that question as to whether or not Jesus did not respond to these false disciples by saying, no, you did not do these things in my name. Methodist theologian Adam Clark says, it's as if Jesus is saying, through my love to the souls of men, I blessed your preaching, but yourselves I could never esteem, because you were destitute of the spirit of my gospel, unholy in your hearts and unrighteous in your conduct. Out of love for those to whom the word was being proclaimed. Out of love for those to whom this this work was being done. Jesus blessed the work. But he says to the workers, I didn't know you because you were far from me in your hearts. What Jesus is dealing with and the reason that Matthew highlights this. Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian audience. That is followers of Jesus who have a Jewish background. And, and these were perhaps, for, for these people as we see in the New Testament, the, it was perhaps more difficult for, for many Jewish Christians to give themselves over fully to the power and the purpose and the importance of the gospel. Because they were wrapped up, wrapped up in their lives where it was a lifetime of being told that you have to act a certain way, you have to do certain things, you have to show certain things in your life in order to be accepted by God. And if you can't, which none of us can, then you have to offer these sacrifices in this given way in order that you will be blessed and your family will be blessed. Imagine having all of that baggage, and maybe that is the case for some of you. You were raised in a tradition in which you felt like the weight of being a follower of Jesus was like chains. When what we see in the lives of people whom Jesus set free is a breaking of those chains. And yes, an invitation to go and sin no more. But not because they are capable of doing it, but because Jesus has made it possible for them to be forgiven and be offered new life. So out of love for those who are on the receiving end of of this prophecy and of this healing and the casting out of demons, out of love for those people, Jesus says, I blessed the work, but you I don't know because the reason that you were doing it is for selfish motives. You were trying to check boxes. You were trying to do the right thing. You were trying to pretend that you were associated with me because you did things in my name when really in your hearts you were still living for yourselves. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees in this way when he called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you were beautiful. You do and you say all of the right things, and yet on the inside of you is death and decay because you have not yielded your heart to me. When we consider these words of Jesus on that day, on that day, the day in which our lives will be judged, the day in which the things that we have done 
will be examined. We are forced to wrestle. We are forced to examine that which we held as priority in our lives. That which we lifted up as being worthy of our attention and our affection, that which we pursued, that which we gave ourselves to. Because it's easy to justify those things now. But on that day, when our lives and our hearts are being examined, are we able still to justify that thing that we chased? Are we able still to justify living for self or pursuing this thing that we felt like was so important that would add to this life that we were working to create for ourselves? Or will we, brought fa- will, will we be brought face to face with the fact that it is rubbish? That as the prophet Isaiah says that our righteousness is filthy rags. That it cannot stand up under the judgment of Christ. You see, what Christ is after here is not fruit in the name of Jesus. It's not to work in such a way that Jesus looks at us and approves of us, but it is to realize that the work that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is all that is necessary for us to find life as life was meant to be lived. It's not because of the work that I do. It's because of the work that was done for me that I find that there is life. The rest of the New Testament is full of Paul and others trying to untangle this understanding of a works-based righteousness, a righteousness in which we would point to the work that we have done for Jesus before we point to anything else, that we would point to the work that we have done for Jesus in order to be accepted by Him. And yet Paul is clear. You consider the journey of Paul and what he has been through. You consider that Paul checked so many of the boxes as a faithful Jewish man. And yet when he is brought face to face with Christ, he realizes, as he says in Philippians 3, that it's all garbage. It's all rubbish. None of it compares to the glory of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Many of us are content to say that we know Jesus as Savior, to say that we know that he has forgiven our sins, but I wonder how many of us are willing to submit to him as Lord. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the authority of Jesus when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If all authority belongs to him, it means that the response for us and in the authority, Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. He offered it so that we might know life. If Jesus had the authority to do that and had the authority to take his life up again and was raised from the dead and has the authority to invite us into life with him, then the only appropriate response for us to the one uh, who has all authority is complete allegiance, is complete submission. And yet the church, so much of the church today is people walking around giving half-hearted devotion and calling it discipleship. But I wonder what the church would begin to look like and what the world around us would begin to look like if instead of half-hearted devotion being called discipleship, we say, you know what, I'm not there yet, but I'm still trying. 
There's still work that Jesus needs to do on my heart, as Patty was saying earlier. I'm still open to the fact that there are things I'm clinging to, that there are things that I have to let go of that Jesus is trying to pry from my grip, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid to let go of those things. But let me tell you about the things that I have let let go of and and the way that Jesus met me in that place, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that he will continue the work that he has begun in me, Philippians 1, 6. If any, uh, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm confident in the promise that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Not because I've done something, but because of what Christ has done for me. He finishes that section by saying, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not about what I can do. It's about what has been done for me that would allow Jesus to look at me and say, you have a place here in this kingdom. And I believe that so many of us are afraid of showing our weakness. So many of us are afraid of not measuring up So many of us are afraid of Jesus saying, ah, that's just not enough. And so we keep going to church and we keep having quiet times and we keep finding ways to serve and we keep looking for opportunities for people to look at our lives and to affirm what may very well be a half-hearted devotion because we are unwilling to surrender all of our heart to the one who gave all of himself so that our brokenness might be healed, so that our hopelessness might be met with hope, so that the darkness within us might be flooded with light, so that our sin might be forgiven, and so that we might be invited to live new life. And that out of that, God bears fruit as a result of our deep abiding connection with Jesus. Friends, while these words are hard and while they might cause us to examine our lives, we have to understand that there is great mercy in God's word. There is great mercy in the fact that we've been forgiven and that we've been given opportunity to live into this kingdom. Let me read this as we close and prepare to receive communion together. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, uh, Ephesians in Ephesus, not Philippi, in Ephesus. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But then I love this. 
For we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a place for us to do the work that God calls us to do, but it is not our work that is going to earn us a seat at that table. It is the work of Christ and Christ alone that is going to earn us a place at that table because of what he gave, because there is nothing that I can offer in myself that makes me worthy or righteous of his love. But out of his great love, he gave his life on the cross so that my sins might be forgiven. He took on my sinfulness so that I might become the righteousness of God, so that when I boast, the thing that I am boasting in is not the work that I've done, but the work that has been done for me in the person of Jesus. That is a message that the world needs to hear, because I'm not inviting people to measure up to my standard that I have set for myself. I'm inviting them to receive this gift of God that is in Christ Jesus, and then to participate in this unfolding kingdom in this world by doing works that have been prepared in advance for us to do, made possible by the work that has been done by Jesus on the cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. Church, this world is desperate to hear that they are loved, not because of what they have to offer, not because they fit a mold, but because of what has been offered for them in the person of Christ. And it's not until we come to a place in our own lives where we are living in an abiding relationship with Jesus because of the hope and the truth of that message. It's not until then that we can offer anything that is compelling enough for people to say yes to. And I'm so thankful this morning that we have the opportunity to approach the Lord's table together because it is for us, the church, the most visible reminder of what has been given on our behalf. Amen.